Welcome to Offshoot, the Fident Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple, supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me on episode one of Offshoot. I'm going to start with an apology. Uh, I think I've got a lot of learning opportunity in front of me as an interviewer. We'll call this uh, step one on the journey of a thousand miles. I find myself talking over Brian Shirkin, my guests, uh, not once or twice, but at least a few times. So my apologies to Brian and my apologies to you, the listener, but uh, I was too focused on trying to get from A to B to C to D in terms of items I was hoping to cover and uh, not letting the conversation breathe like a good jazz recording might. So uh, apologies, but you'll hear in here a bunch of great content from Brian, um, things about being too smart uh, and letting that get in your own way of starting a venture. Uh, partnerships with people and developers and how the people part of all of his ventures is the priority, Uh, the credit enhancement that they'll bring to investments that they make and conversations around cyclical businesses and fixed overhead and the potential mismatch there. Uh, And finally, a, a conversation around passion and what drives you. So a lot of really great uh, takeaways from Brian, and uh, uh, look forward to improving uh, in, in episodes that follow. Thanks a lot. Hello, everyone. Thank you for sharing some of your time with me and my guest today, Brian Shirkin. Brian's the co-founder at Mountain Pacific Opportunity Partners and the founder of its precursor, Mountain Capital Partners. He also co-founded Columbus Pacific 25 years ago. Through all of that, he has been principally involved in millions of square feet of retail, over 10,000 student housing beds, developed over 3,000 multifamily units, and five assisted living projects. He's also provided more than $200 million in mezzanine and joint venture equity capital. Mountain Pacific, his current concern focuses on investing in QOZ projects across the West. I've known Brian for many years with an initial introduction, probably 12 years ago through a good friend of mine, Bob Phillips. Brian's a talented entrepreneur, deep expertise in all things commercial real estate, finance, and development. He is a South African, which you will hear for yourself in just a moment, and a man of my own heart who lives on the beach and in the mountains with one residence in LA and another in Park City. So, Brian, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, look, there's a million things we could talk about. Uh, we don't have that long together. Uh, so, you know, really, I've just got a few ideas about topics we might cover. Um, but really, it's just a conversation. So uh, let's just take that tack and see where it goes, if that's all right. Sure. Cool. Um, to start, could you just tell me a bit about yourself and the company? 
Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, as you said, I uh, immigrated to the United States from South Africa. I grew up in a city called Durban on the beach, went to the University of Cape Town, uh, graduated with a degree in finance and accounting, um, immigrated to the United States in 1983, started out in public accounting, became a CPA, got a green card, and then went into the uh, real estate business in 1986. Uh, worked for a company called Standard Management Company until 1994, at which time uh, a partner and I started our own uh, real estate investment company to buy a shopping center for redevelopment from the RTC that the company we had worked worked for had chosen not to buy. And uh, that is now 25, 26 years ago. It's amazing that it's been that long. And uh, uh I uh, am married with two kids. Uh, uh, my son is 23. He just graduated from uh, New York University last year. He's a musician, and nice. my daughter is a, uh, a just finished her junior year at Tulane University. Okay, great. Congrats. Thank um, you. So, how did you? How is it that you came into the U.S.? I don't really know much uh, of your story in that regard. Um, so, uh, growing up in South Africa, the, uh, what I would describe as the American dream was very much in our, uh, in our vision. And, uh, I think it'd been an aspiration for me, um, probably from my late teens, uh, when I was in college, it was something that, uh, we talked about pretty regularly, uh, at the time, uh, South Africa was in a pretty difficult situation, uh, Apartheid was at its peak. We had a uh, mandatory military draft. I wanted nothing to do with the military. And uh, we had the option of either going into the military when we graduated high school or college. And uh, effectively, I was a draft dodger. Um, And uh, so when you combine my desire to leave South Africa and the dream of living in America and uh, being able to take advantage of what this uh, you know, amazing country offered. Uh, uh, that's how I ended up there. Uh, accounting was a pretty straightforward path. Uh, it's one of those professions where not a lot of other people want to do it. So uh, <laughs> there, were, there were many opportunities. So uh, it definitely provided a great path to immigration and also a great grounding. Um, I knew very little about the business environment here and in public accounting was exposed to many industries from manufacturing to retail to distribution to real estate. And uh, that's what really piqued my interest in uh, real estate was working with a number of real estate clients. Uh, I love the creativity of the uh, of the profession, the uh, the financial framework, which I was always interested in and the. and the opportunity and also kind of the scale of the market. It struck me very early that, you know, because the markets are so big, you know, in this country, both geographically and, you know, in terms of property type, there was plenty of opportunity for everybody to succeed. So, um, um, you know, real estate really struck me as something that was consistent with both my, uh, my passion and my skill set. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to go to work for a company where I, advanced through the ranks pretty quickly and you know by the time i left i was running both the financing and the uh, acquisition side of the business uh, my partner worked there as well and he's a uh, a lawyer by profession and he was running the um, you know really the development and leasing side of the business so uh, by the time we left eight years later 
we thought we had the you know the tools and the skill set to succeed on our own. And and you say you guys stepped out with Columbus Pacific right during RTC. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, uh, we picked up our first project in 1994. It was a uh, defaulted loan on a uh, shopping center just outside of Columbus, Ohio. It was a big center. It was about 300,000 feet, but it was cheap. It was $6 million. And it seemed enormous at the time, but, you know, 20 bucks a foot, maybe around a 10 cap at 50% occupancy, everything we kind of dream of today that we never see anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, it had a supermarket that was looking to expand, but a basically a bankrupt developer that didn't have the capital to do it. Uh, it had a lot of excess land for out parcels. It had a Sears department store on 100,000 feet on 10 acres that, you know, was uh, concerned. Everyone was concerned about the renewal. We knew it was a big, a good development opportunity if they didn't renew. So what a lot of people saw as risk, we saw as opportunity. And the reality of it is we, we weren't really smart enough at the time to understand the complexity associated with the deal and the, uh, uh, and all the issues associated with both the redevelopment and development. We only figured that out about two years into the deal. But uh, it always struck me that, you know, in the beginning of a real estate career, sometimes you're uh, you're not smart enough to, to get in your own way. So, uh, you know, we took on a deal that I definitely wouldn't do today, but it really started our career and, uh, and started our business and ended up being a very profitable transaction for us. Yeah, that's super interesting. I completely agree with you. I think um, the entrepreneurial plight is one where uh, a lot of folks chuck themselves into things that with their current knowledge, uh, they might not have done. But I think that's part of the learning and growing. So I know Columbus Pacific, you guys did a ton of retail and then uh, you created a JV uh, with one of the capital markets brokers in Southern California for um, Mountain Capital Partners and did a bunch of multifamily and student housing finance. Now with um, Mountain Pacific Opportunity Partners, you guys are focused on the qualified opportunity zones. What's what's led you to um, focus on that in the in the current environment? Um, so it was really a transition from uh, a capital markets business that, as you mentioned, we created about six units six years ago um that business was positioned to provide what we call non non-institutional equity to multifamily developers and what that really meant is deals that were too small for institutional investors typically in the five to 15 million dollar range of equity or uh were uh, in markets that institutional investors wouldn't go to uh, five or six years ago those are markets like uh let's say park city or Sorry, not Park City, Salt Lake City or San Antonio. And um, and it was our expectation that everything we were doing over time would become institutionalized, which it did. And uh, as more capital started flooding into the deals, uh, you know, land became more expensive. Uh, obviously, construction costs have gone up pretty significantly um, over the last few years. And uh, uh we started to uh, sell off the properties that we were that we had developed, and over the last couple of years, and really didn't see um, a lot of uh, you know great opportunities to reinvest the the money. It all seemed and uh, everything seemed pretty expensive. Uh, so we started to pass on doing ten thirty one exchanges, which we typically would have done, and started looking at the opportunity zones as an opportunity to invest our own gains 
on a tax deferred basis. Um, uh, our return requirements were slightly lower uh, given all of the tax benefits. And uh, we saw, given the long-term hold required for uh, opportunity zone development projects, uh, we saw the ability to go into areas that were still gentrifying with the expectation that over a three to seven year period, we would see significant enhancement and improvement in those areas. So uh, we really started the business out with our own capital. Our idea was to come into deals very early in their cycle. Uh, so to identify, and we're not, we're not a multifamily developer, we're a provider of capital. So we started to look at identifying developers that had opportunity zone sites tied up that needed capital for pre-development, you know, land entitlement and, uh, and land acquisition. So uh, we have uh, right now about eight projects in either in development or in pre-development with development partners. And we have really positioned ourselves as a capital provider uh, for multifamily development and the opportunity zones in the Western states. So we have a concentration in uh, right now, California, uh, Arizona and Texas, uh, although we would look at um, uh, Utah, Washington, uh, Nevada, and Oregon as well. And are you guys looking um, to be that kind of pre-development co-GP capital that maybe gets a project going with a, a more commodity JV equity partner on the LP side that comes in once you've got maybe a full construction budget, or are you going to take it from those early days all the way through to stabilization? Uh, we'll take it from uh, from beginning to end. So we're looking to be both the GP partner uh, to participate on the GP side for coming in at pre-development and providing pre-development capital and also uh, providing the LP capital. We have the ability to provide capital, I'd say, up to about $20 million uh, per deal. Uh, so anything over that, we would look at bringing in you know, some type of institutional entity, but anything up to $20 million, we're really... We're doing with our own uh, capital and our, uh, our own assets, businesses, real estate, who are looking to um, uh, invest in the opportunity zones, but don't have the wherewithal. Uh, also, oftentimes, they don't like the yields uh, because many of the projects that we've seen marketed in opportunity zones are not generating what we consider to be an economically viable return on cost that mitigates the risk return you know, concerns that we would normally have, but by coming in a pre-development and, you know, taking down the land at uh, unentitled pricing, we're able to get closer to what we would consider to be a uh, appropriate risk-adjusted return. And are you, I mean, finding uh, good QSE projects, I think in primary markets is difficult, um, or it's a QSE for a very clear reason, but are you looking at primary, secondary, tertiary markets? What What's the uh, the mandate in terms of geography? I'd say it's primary and secondary markets. So um, we have a project that, uh, a larger project, 220 units that we're doing uh, in Phoenix, right on the border of Tempe. Uh, so obviously Tempe is a very advanced and evolved market, but uh, with the light rail line, you can see the Tempe market expanding. Uh, across the border into Phoenix. We're doing a deal in Dallas uh, in an area called the Bishop's Arts District, which is very close proximity uh, to downtown Dallas. And you can see the evolution happening. And we're also doing uh, two projects in San Pedro uh, in Los Angeles, which is uh, uh, has tremendous development coming in. And uh, we see the long-term prospects as being... Uh, uh, very positive. We're also doing a bunch of stuff in the uh, in the mid city area of Los Angeles, the area between 
you know, Robertson and downtown LA around the uh, Expo line in Jefferson, which is, uh, you know, somewhat uh, uh, connection between, you know, Culver City and downtown LA. So, um, you know, these are all areas that we expect to improve dramatically over time where, uh, where we're comfortable owning the projects long-term um, and uh, where we expect to see, uh, you know, rental growth and barriers to entry. Over time yeah. Well. And you mentioned lower hurdles. So, um, it's probably over a half a year, maybe even a year ago now that um, we took the time to kind of build out a 10 year hold and then made assumptions on the nature of the gains that were being exchanged into a QOZ, whether it was short term or long term. Um, and then kind of looked at cap rate compression that could be done to to equate to the same investor IRR. And, you know, when you talked about this earlier, you sort of said, you know, we can kind of have a little bit of a lower return expectation because of some of the tax advantages. I think we landed uh, at like a 200 basis point IRR delta, which is to say, you know, put two projects side by side and, and look at them on an after tax basis. If one of them was returning like a 13 IRR and then the one in the QOZ might be a 15, is that, does that math tie with what you're seeing? And, and how do you guys think about kind of the lower return uh, that you, you would accept? So that is really a reverse engineering that the uh, accountants and tax planners have done to calculate the benefit of the, uh, of the tax benefit. Um, we don't really look at the deals that way. Uh, we really want the deals to have a, an attractive risk-adjusted return given the risk of the deal. Uh, typically, if we're translating it, it might be more like a 25 basis point differential on the uh, untrended return okay, cost. Yeah. Um, so we really do it the other way around. Uh, IRRs over a 10-year period are easily manipulated uh, by uh, making minor modifications to things like rental growth or expense growth. So we tend to pay less attention uh, to the internal rate of return and much more attention to the return on cost and the differential uh, between the um, the return that we're building to relative to the uh, what a, a market capitalization rate would be today. Yeah, uh, that gives you a, a better a better picture of where you're at and what you're doing without allowing a significant manipulation of the underwriting. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, this is something I thought we could bring up later, but but we're kind of all around it right now. Uh, and I realize the scope of the question here is, is significant, but, you know, you're talking a lot about risk adjusted returns and assessing, um, projects on the front end to, to kind of make go, no go decisions. Do you guys have, uh, I mean, I know the answer to this question is yes, but what is your thinking and methodology around, um, assessing investment risk and, uh, discerning good from bad. I mean, I'm sure there's a lengthy process, but if you could share it with, you know, the listeners kind of, how do you guys approach a new deal and try to kick it out or, or you know, find out that it's one you really want to support? So um, having capitalized, for, I don't know, probably close to a couple billion dollars of development over the last 25 years, I will tell you that the biggest lesson we have learned is that it is all about the people. Um, so, uh, in our business model, we're capitalizing developers and, uh, um, we have spent a lot of time trying to fix good deals with bad developers, bad deals with bad developers. And, 
at the end of the day, the most important thing for us is to have a partner who we can trust and rely on um, to execute the business plan in, in a manner that is consistent with our expectation. Uh, we are uh, always positioned to step in if we need to, but uh, if we do, and we have in the past, it's a failure in our business plan and requires a diversion of resources that is incredibly inefficient for us. So uh, it really starts with the people. Uh, it starts with having a uh, you know well-designed that it's in and having uh, you know a good understanding of the path to entitlement and cost. Uh, we would always give up return, particularly over a 10-year period, you know, for a great project in a great area with a great developer. So um, uh, you don't always get all three, but the one you never give up is the great developer part. Um, so that is really the threshold. Um, you know, economics change over time, and uh, particularly in an environment like today, which uh, I guess I would describe as our COVID environment, where... Uh, we all share the concern that uh, rental rates uh, are actually declining right now. And uh, we have some uncertainty about when rental rates will continue to increase again. So, you know, it has a real impact on underwriting and economics. Uh, but we're also looking at that in the context of uh, what we expect to see uh, a uh, a big decrease in construction costs. We're expecting our apartment construction costs to go down by 5 to 10%. So uh, we've actually slowed some projects down in order to get the benefit of what we expect to be declining costs. And that's one of the reasons we ex expect to see more opportunities in this area in conjunction with reduced supply. Uh, a lot of projects uh, that are contemplated or planned right now will never get built because uh, they will not get financed. Uh, one of the advantages we have and our developers have been working with us is oftentimes we will bring the debt to the deal. We have a wide range of banking relationships and uh, we're able to bring very efficient and cost-effective debt to transactions in an environment where just getting debt is... And uh, is that debt that you guys will support with balance sheet and, and guarantee kind of participation or your, is that still on the developer? I would say that in about 50% of our deals, we have provided credit enhancement on the debt, uh, which is uh, us providing a guarantee or some other type of uh, credit support. And uh, it has a pretty dramatic impact on the economics of a deal when you can, uh, you know, decrease the cost of your debt by, you know, as much, How much as... Is, how much did you say there? I lost it. Uh, we can the cost of our debt by sometimes as much as 50 percent oh wow. bringing yeah. in an institutional debt source yeah yeah well uh i tend to agree with you on on multi although the one sort of tailwind if you will that has me intrigued i'd love to get your thoughts on it um is kind of the cost of debt financing um in particular i don't know if you're tracking on the topic of uh you know, rent declines, cost declines, a lot of apartment projects being unfinanceable or potentially falling off of the pipeline. Um, the tailwind that I see there, those all being the headwinds, is uh, the, the recent dramatic drop in interest rates. And in particular, there, the HUD has a program at 223F that um, prior to March 2nd, you couldn't get without three years of stabilized operations. That money's being quoted at like 2.45 to 2.6, 2.65%. Uh, it's fixed rate, 80% LTV, 35-year AM, um, 
money. And what's interesting is if you take, you know, sort of where the space you're playing and you take that middle market developer who is perhaps they still able to build to six yield on cost. And you look at that 35 year AM uh, mortgage constant at 4.3%, you can just get to stabilized operations. And, and I'll grant you, you may want to stress them in terms of total occupancy and, and pro forma rents. You may want to stress down but if they can build to a six, you're looking at like 120% of cost being refinanced in the form of an 80% LTV uh, HUD loan. And I've never seen that dynamic in the marketplace. Uh, so I was just curious if you guys looked at that side of the takeout financing and kind of the implications between, you know, what I would say is a pre-COVID yield on cost pro forma and a post-COVID uh, cost of permanent financing, because it, it looks compelling to me. Uh, so you're absolutely correct. Uh, the financing environment is really uh, pretty amazing right now. Um, and uh, theoretically, it should allow us to build to a lower return on cost. Uh, on the other hand, um, these projects are not being delivered. Uh, for oftentimes or stabilized for two to three years. So to rely on a, on a financing structure and an interest rate environment two to three years out in underwriting today um, is not what we would consider to be responsible. Now, to the extent that those programs are still available and those rates are still available two to three years from now, that would make the deals that much better. Um, we saw a lot of financial engineering going on over the last let's say two to three years um, that took deals that were uh, of average or lower than average economic quality and made them look really good by, uh, by creating a high leverage structure, which might've been a, you know, a combination of a first mortgage or a mezzanine loan or a high leverage uh, loan from a debt fund. Those are the deals that are battling right now because of their leverage. Um, so, we're we're obviously uh, happy to take advantage of great financing when it's available, and in the growth of our student housing business, that's what drove our business uh, for the last ten years was the differential between cap rate and borrowing rate. Uh, the good news in that business is rates did nothing but come down over the last ten years, which was actually contrary to our expectation. But yeah, the HUD programs are fantastic. Uh, you know, there are administrative issues with them and timing issues and and cost issues but mm -hmm. generally and so you talk uh, about programs are very i agree with you i think uh, a lot of folks especially some of the larger uh, multifamily merchant builders that you know the household names of the the big guys doing three and four hundred unit projects um you know a senior piece uh, a pref piece uh, a sort of pref piece within the gp and then the gp and uh, a lot of those deals i think are going to really struggle to hit pro forma and find what was the pro forma exit on either sale or refinance, typically sale. Um, but are you guys seeing any distress there yet? Or are we too early kind of in the game for that stuff to be trickling out? I think it's still very early. There's a tremendous amount of forbearance uh, in existence in the marketplace. So um, not too many lenders have elected to take action against their borrowers in this environment. Uh, my guess is you'll start to see uh, more of it three to six months from now. Obviously, a lot of it is going to depend, and I'm talking specifically about apartments right now, on what happens with rental collections. I know for most of us, the 
uh, rain collections have been a lot better than expected over the last couple of months. There's some concern uh, about uh, what rain collections will look like um, uh, when all of the uh, capital coming into the markets from the federal government uh, starts to uh, starts to disappear, particularly unemployment and what the return of jobs looks like. So um, uh, we expect to see some distress. We don't expect it to be widespread. Uh, we do expect to see some type of pricing adjustment in the short to midterm, but over the next 12 to 24 months, we expect both uh, rental growth and pricing to return hmm. uh, to the trend yeah, interesting. Uh, that uh, they were on pre-COVID. You know, one of the other phenomena that I think is really unique, uh, what are we, I think the the central bankers parlance is, you know, coordination of monetary and fiscal policy. And so you're seeing uh, kind of a nationalized bond market, if you will, and, and yield curve control with the Fed just buying everything the Treasury's putting out. Um, add to that, you know, backdrop of it looks like nationalization and reshoring and a, and a bit of protectionism, um, all of which I think were brought to a head by by this COVID. But I don't I don't know that they come exclusively from that. But you know, where where are you guys? your crystal ball you know, in terms of those more macro um, dynamics, where, where do you see us going in terms of, you know, perhaps inflation growth, job growth, uh, recessions, depressions, you know, lots of L U W shape <laughs> recessions, uh, recoveries. What, what's your, what's your view of kind of the big macro stuff that's taking place? So we really don't have a strong opinion that underlies our business. I guess the reality of it is that, we're not economic economists and uh, our guess is probably no better or worse than anybody else's. Uh, the reason we like multifamily development right now is that uh, we expect the markets to be in relatively good shape two years from now. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen over the next two years, but uh, most of our projects will deliver two to three years out. And uh, that feels like a very good environment to be delivering in Uh most of the studies that we read show us returning to rental growth um, in that timeline. Um, we've been betting wrong on inflation for 10 years already, <laughs> yeah. so uh, I wouldn't take a bet on inflation right now. On, on, on the other hand, you know, if we do see some inflation, it's going to be good for our business. Uh, hot assets are always going to perform well in an inflationary environment. Uh, we're obviously trying to lock in uh, as much of our debt long-term as we can right now, because it's very hard to predict, um, you know, where interest rates are going to be two years from now. So if we like, you know, where interest rates are today or two years from now, when we deliver a property, we're going to lock in our financing uh, because there's enough risk in the development process that, uh, you know, we're not looking to take capital markets or interest rate risk. Um, so I think the, there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, that exists over the, as I said earlier, the short to midterm, the next you know six to eighteen months. Uh, I think the conventional wisdom is that you know we're going to have some type of vaccine or cure uh, within that time frame. I think it will cause the uh, the economy to really stabilize and settle down, and uh, will diminish the risk premium that we're all looking for today. I mean, if you're looking to commit significant capital to a deal today, you you need to have a risk premium in your return, regardless of what your outlook is. 
to make sure that you're getting compensated mm-hmm. for the uncertainty of what happens over the next 12 to 18 months. But um, uh, I'm generally an optimist. You don't That's develop right. real estate or provide capital for development if you're not an optimist. And uh, if you use appropriate levels of leverage and you're able to hold your asset through any cycle, and this is the I think the fourth big cycle I've been through. Uh, I think that regardless of your kind of macro assumptions, uh, over time, and particularly with the opportunity zones where you've got a ten-year hold period, in order to access the what I think is the greatest tax benefit, which is no tax on the gain from the property we develop, um, I think over that period of time everything will be will be fine. I still have a lot of faith in this you know, in this country and uh, uh, in uh, our ability to <laughs> create a civil society and maintain our democracy and have a stable economy. And uh, so uh, we remain optimistic. Over yeah. The long and time. on that it's risk short of time for kind of the current ecosystem, let's, uh, you know, let's uh, establish that the answer of appropriate risk premiums on a project by project basis is always kind of it depends but if we're talking yield on cost to pro forma uh exit cap and an appropriate being perhaps 150 basis points on a so you're building to a stick with a expectation of selling a four and a half cap let's say that's pre-covid if you were to look at that same deal now uh, all the facts of the project remaining the same, what kind of a risk premium do you think you'd be looking for? I mean, it's kind of inf- reflective of the whole bid-ask spread in the marketplace right now. Right. Yeah. Now, the reality of it is that no one's really building to a six. Uh, all these deals get presented at a six, but by the time you know you pull out what we consider to be the unsupported assumptions around uh, rental growth and you know operating expenses and cost contingencies, I would say that everything being developed was really not everything, but most of what we'd seen in the Western States was lower than a six, particularly given construction costs. Um, and uh, so uh, it's, it's kind of hard to say it ultimately depends on the, uh, you know, on the asset and the location, uh, you know, on a development project today, um, there may not be a substantial risk premium if you're de- delivering in two years because we have a pretty con- strong conviction about what things are going to look like in two years versus what they're going to look like in six months. So uh, I would say if we're buying a value-add property and we have bought a lot of properties over the last few years, you know, we're probably going to want to see you know, an IRR that's you know, 10 to 20% higher that we would have wanted to see uh, you know, three to six months ago uh, on a development deal. Um, I'm not sure that um, there really is a risk premium okay. to be yeah, had. That makes nor, sense. That's, nor that's are actually, we demanding one. Uh, somewhat confidence inspiring that you're kind of looking at the whole thing as a speed bump that um, hopefully in two years we kind of look in the rear view mirror and we've more or less reset. I certainly have heard other viewpoints that um, – have have a more uh you know dr doom noriel rubini being one of them that has a much more draconian view of what's about to unfold the reality of it is that in the real estate business you always have to be somewhat contrarian um i talk about appropriate risk adjusted returns but what that really means in my world uh is that we're getting returns in excess of what we should be doing getting given the level of risk that we're taking 
because I have to beat the market. That's what we're we, what we've been doing. Uh, you know, whether we were buying retail in 1994 or you know student housing in 2011, uh, our goal is to always take a position that is not consistent with conventional wisdom in the market, or is or in an area where we're positioned to execute on a business plan that is not accessible to everybody. So, um, you know, we, we always try to understand the point of view of people who uh, have a perspective that is contrary to ours, but yeah. um, well, you don't be, do what we clear, do by actually following the path. Uh, your view of building now is a bit contrarian. And I think those who lean into it, especially with the backdrop of some of the financing, granted, we have to know that it will be there in two years uh, and maybe not underwrite to that financing. But uh, I think you'll be rewarded handsomely, uh, QOZ or not, because I think a lot of both the lending community and the JV equity side, um, as evidenced by huge layoffs in the larger multifamily development shops, uh, they're just they're just going to pump the brakes and wait for things to settle down. And um, I tend to think with you, the cost declines, the improvement in uh, the responsiveness you're probably going to have with all of your vendors, the drop in interest rates and kind of structural supply demand imbalances. And certainly in Southern California, I don't know about all of the other markets that uh, you mentioned in terms of Tempe and Dallas and things like that. But uh, I I think you're, well, well, we should probably reconnect in two and a half years and do another one of these, but Mike, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to look back and see what happened. There is one, there is one other thing that happens in this environment and uh, where there is, a, let's say, let's call it a shortage of capital for compelling deals, is that as a provider of capital, we look for much better structure. So, for example, today, mm-hmm. uh, we can structure a lot of our positions as preferred equity. Uh, with uh, terms that would typically be seen with with uh, traditional JV equity. So uh, as a capital provider today, um, oftentimes mm-hmm. I would much rather take better structure than better returns. So we might give up some upside in order to uh, have a developer subordinate their equity uh, to ours. And uh, in this market, uh, we're quoting much more preferred equity than traditional equity. And that's one of the advantages of uh, of investors working directly through us because we have access to so many developers and pretty good insight into how the market is operating at any point in time. So, um, and, and as have, a press really provider, are you guys available to doing a kind of typical uh, leverage point of call it 80, 85% LTC, or are you going way higher like you might on a you know 90 10 or 80 20 jv but just giving it that that subordination you know uh, developers equities being subordinated and you're getting kind of a sweep of capital and return the latter so um you know i've never really been that concerned about developers co-invest uh uh, as long as they uh, have the characteristics that we're looking for in a developer. So we have deals where we've gone up to, you know, as high as 100% of the capital stack uh, with the right developer with appropriate uh, fee subordination. So uh, we're always very high in the capital stack. Um, we're not looking for a coupon. That's not our business. Uh, so when I talk about preferred equity, it's really it's really JV equity that's structured into a preferred position where we have. Um, Well, look, let's let's uh, turn the page a little bit and talk about you and, and your uh, sort of 
personal um, engine, the things that kind of make you go. Uh, and I guess I'll start with teams. I know that Columbus Pacific, you guys were, I believe, a very lightweight shop, you and your uh, partner. I remember running into you once with a backpack and you were sort of <laughs> explaining how you could fly out, spend the night in the market, fly back and, you know, really have everything you need just in a, a laptop and a, I think a change of clothes in your backpack. And I know Mountain Pacific also was a very lightweight or sorry, Mountain Capital Partners was a, a very lightweight team. And it looks like you've got some heavyweights, but also a small team with um, Mountain Pacific opportunities. So just your thoughts around, uh, you know, team building and, and what is it that has had you continue to keep a small team as opposed to, you know, doing what a lot of folks do, which is build a full scale operation and, and pick up all that overhead. So uh, we've built multiple businesses around real estate. Um, each of our businesses are run by a partner who has day-to-day responsibility for that business. And, uh, every relationship with a partner is structured in a way that creates maximum alignment. So I'm a big believer in alignment. Uh, most of these partners uh, have significant ownership in every business. And, uh, you know, today we have a shopping center business. We have a student housing business. We have an assisted living business. I have a capital markets business. And uh, I actually have a resort development business as well, each of which are run uh, by very senior people in the industry that are enormously capable that participate in profits, uh, typically to the extent that we can contract out commodity services. Uh, we're looking to do that because uh, uh, building overhead uh, in the real estate business is, we believe, or I believe, inconsistent with the counter-cyclical nature or cyclical nature of our business where uh, you can't be in a position where you're having to do deals in order to support your overhead because you end up doing a lot of bad deals. So uh, we would rather contract out as many services as we can so that we can scale up when the opportunities exist and scale down when they don't. Um, and that's the way uh, all of our businesses are, uh, are structured today. I mean, obviously, you know, student housing is a very management intensive business. We, uh, we co-own a management company with a partner and we have 250 employees in that business and that's labor intensive. Uh, but in our opportunity zone business, there, uh, there are four key people and uh, we're very focused on a, you know, streamlined analysis and decision process and, uh, you know, getting deals done and focused very heavily uh, upfront and figuring out what we can mm-hmm. and can't do and not wasting a lot of time, you know, on things we're not going to do. Um, also, uh, when I, uh, started in the real estate business, I worked for a company that was, uh, had a very large in-house staff. And, uh, I found that I was spending, uh, at probably at least half of my time on personnel related matters. And when we started, uh, Columbus Pacific 25 years ago, we wanted to spend all of our time on the areas of our business where we make money, uh, which is always, uh, which is always what we've done. I've never seen a lot of margin in the in the management business and certain aspects of our industry, you need a control management, but uh, where you don't, um, you know, the margins go to those people who have the scale and we want to have the ability to scale up. Yeah. Scale I mean, down, clearly it's a very uh, you uh, know, effective strategy. We don't have to look any those. farther than those multifamily builders of scale that we were just referencing uh, and look at, you know, I think they've laid off you know, 35 to 50% of their staffs because they were doing exactly what you mentioned, which is, 
generating fee income that's sufficient enough to keep the team fully employed at all times. And uh, when they hit headwinds, there's only one thing for them to do, which is try to reduce overhead and skinny up and push through. So uh, congrats. I mean, I think it's a very intelligent. And also we need to, we also believe that you have to maintain flexibility to move through and into different areas of the real estate business. We started, uh, we did a lot of shopping center deals coming out of the downturn from 2010 to 2013, where we were buying distress centers that were, let's say, half built or half leased. But as they stabilized, we sold them as well as 80% of our remaining retail portfolio and really cycled into the uh, into the student housing business, which we thought had a an income stream with much greater integrity over over time. But if we'd had significant infrastructure in retail, I think it would have made it uh, much more difficult for us to cycle out of retail uh, and into students. So, um, and even in the multifamily development business, we built and owned uh, probably as many as 3,000 units over the last six years. Uh, we've probably sold 70% of that already. With, with big infrastructure in place that was entrenched, I think it would have been much more difficult to sell out of those assets. At what mm-hmm. I think, we yeah, that's look cool. Back at, uh, um, kind of well, look, if, we, if you move away a little bit from kind of teams and, and that um, team building strategy, uh, and just go to kind of the personal side, um, you know, my my view of life is kind of if I can kind of win the day, um, I've kind of, I've got a much better chance of, if you will, winning it all. Um, so I've got a whole series of, of kind of daily routines that I try to, uh, send myself through to kind of frame, uh, the day and, and my head, if you will, as it pertains to approaching it. And it seems like you're very clear on what you have been doing for a long time. Um, I wonder if you might have any daily routines that, that help you kind of, uh, focus and, and perform at the level you have. Um, so before I get into that, what I would talk a little bit about, and I speak to a lot of young people that are in the real estate business or coming into the real estate business about their path. And uh, I think most importantly is for people to try to identify their area of passion. Uh, real estate is not a generic business. There are lots of different aspects, lots of different property types, lots of different geographies and uh I think in order to be successful in this business, you need to find the areas of the business that you're passionate about, and that can change over time. Uh, We, um, and I'll come to your question in a minute, we built a home in Park City about 12 years ago now and became very excited about the idea of creating exciting contemporary spaces and uh, (laughs) created a, what I call a home building company in Park City, which eventually became a condominium building company, which is now a hotel development company and uh uh we have become very when i say we i mean my wife and i have become very passionate about the process of creating uh exciting places and spaces and uh uh, that people can experience in a way that affects the quality uh uh of of their life when they're in that space and um So uh, what I've continued to do in this business is to find my areas of passion. And we've been fortunate enough to uh, be able to evolve uh, into uh, into creating projects that uh, are very near and dear to us. Um, uh, In terms of uh, 
a daily routine. Um, our routine changes depending on where we are. So we're fortunate enough to be able to spend half of our time in Santa Monica and the other half in Park City. And uh, a big part of our routine today revolves around the outdoors and, uh, you know, spending a good amount of time outdoors, whether we're skiing or snowshoeing or hiking or, or mountain biking. And, uh, uh, and uh, the one thing I'll add is that uh, my daughter got us into meditation uh, about a year ago because that was the one area of our lives we did not think we could control, which is the area of stress. And uh, for stress management, I'd say that uh, meditation has become uh, very, very significant. Uh, I have dabbled in it off today. and on throughout the years and actually just recently got turned on to another of these uh, apps. It's called Waking Up. Sam Harris is the guy who who kind of is in there. And I have I have found it uh, absolutely fantastic. So that's that's great. Um Another point back, you mentioned kind of relationships and, and it's all about the people, um, the longer, uh, meaning the developers was the context, but the longer I've been in this business, the clearer it's become to me that relationships are really central. I mean, whether it's you and I having a, a conversation around a particular development opportunity or uh, any of the other um, dialogues in the industry, it seems that the people are the conduit through which all things travel, hopefully good things, but um curious what your view of uh, relationships is and and kind of their impact on your business um so we really look at it as as uh as partnership and um uh whether it's uh you know one of my business partners who's running one of our core business or one of our development partnership partners um it's all about you know, the integrity of the person and the uh and the commitment to the relationship and the alignment of goals and values. Uh, it's very difficult to, you know, have a great relationship if you don't have shared values. So underlying all of these relationships are people who have, uh, who have shared values. And uh, I have found that uh, by engaging in a community and philanthropically around areas that we're passionate about, uh, I have been able to develop relationships with people that share my values and that share my uh, commitment to the various communities that I'm engaged in. Um, so uh, I think that's what really underlies all of these relationships. And it also takes an investment. Um, uh, you know, relationships don't just happen. They develop over time. And uh, it takes an investment in time of time to build the relationship. But it's not difficult to do if you have common interests and you're engaged uh, in common aspects of either the industry or yeah. your yeah. community. Um, uh, okay. This one's yeah. a little 90 degree turn here, but um, I'm curious about it because you are highly productive and, and what uh, my personal affliction is I'm almost certainly kind of adult ADD and I find it uh, both a gift and a challenge um, but there's a lot of noise, whether it's the phone, the email, the kids, social media, meetings, uh, the 12 applications I've got open on my desktop. Uh, the more that stuff sort of shows up, the harder it is for me to find the time to have the kind of conversation we're having right now to get my brain onto the kinds of thoughts that you just expressed as it pertains to you know, having a passion, but also having the flexibility to let that evolve over time. I'm curious what you might see within the context of, you know, the digital ecosystem and the noise of, of our, if you will, kind of 
current day uh, existence? So I tend to look at the technology a little differently. Um, the way I look at it is as a tool that provides me with the ability to live my life where and how I want to live it, whether I'm, you know, on a golf course or on a ski mountain, uh, I could still be checking emails. I could still be on a call. And uh, I think there's certain people that would prefer not to play golf with me because I might be, uh, I might be checking my emails, but that's what gives me the ability to get home at night and not have 200 emails waiting for me and gives me the ability to spend time, you know, with my family or my kids and uh, all my friends. So um, uh, I don't look at it in a negative way. Um, I have, uh, I think I've been fortunate enough to be able to focus myself in the area of my strengths, which is really, you know, vision and strategy and team creation and team building. And uh, I've been able to surround myself with really talented, capable, motivated people, uh, you know, who are able to execute. So um, I actually find today that I have more, more flexibility with my time than I ever have. Uh, since my kids went to college, we've traveled a lot. And, uh, you know, I've had the ability to run my businesses, you know, while still traveling. And, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in purpose. We haven't talked much about this, but, um, you know, I believe we're put on this earth with a, with a purpose and uh, uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the goal of accomplishing so much more than just personal success. And uh, so I've engaged, uh, you know, pretty significantly in, you know, community building, you know, philanthropy, travel, personal development. And, um, you know, my goal is to leave this earth a better place than, you know, than the one I found it in. So if you're, if you're driven by purpose, I think that uh, you start to, at a certain point, find the things that are fulfilling and important and, uh, uh, and provide meaning, and uh, I'm very, I'm very focused on that. Yeah, both it comes through. It's fantastic. Um, well, look, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but maybe if I mean, you have shared a lot of wisdom. Um, I appreciate your insights and the candor of the exchange. Um, if you have something, you know, there's probably been four or five of these already uh, that you might want to share. Um, business entrepreneurs, real estate entrepreneurs, maybe something that you wish you had learned sooner or thoughts on what it takes to be successful in this business. Um, I'd love to kind of maybe close on, on that front. And, and uh, I just thank you again for taking the time. Um, so maybe I would go back to, you know, one of the comments I made earlier about the, uh, about the difficulty of getting out of your own way. Uh, if you spend too much time thinking about all of the things that can go wrong, uh, you tend to get paralyzed uh, in the decision-making process. So um, I think, you know, the real estate business, particularly when you're looking to accomplish, uh, you know, compelling returns and there's a relatively significant amount of risk involved, uh, you need to be comfortable with risk and, you uh, you just always need to ensure that you're being compensated adequately for the risk you're taking, given the fact that, you know, things can go wrong. Um, you know, I go back to the first deal I did where uh, clearly our risk was not capital because we didn't have any, but it was time. And had we known how much time or how much energy would have needed to go into the first project, we probably wouldn't have done it. But, uh, you know, a certain amount of, uh, 
of ignorance or naivete is uh, not necessarily a negative thing. Oftentimes, that's the thing that enables us to accomplish what other people might have looked at as being impossible. So, um, you know, I feel very strongly about the fact that um, um, the opportunity that this country delivers is incredible. Uh, whether you're starting, you know, with everything or nothing, uh, I really came out with nothing, and this country has provided me with amazing opportunity, access to capital markets, and and opportunities, and amazingly talented people, and um, uh, you know, a lot of people would have said it wasn't possible, but I came out with, you know, amazing naivete, and uh, probably never would have done half of the things. Um, that I've done if uh, I'd listened to yeah, you know, the wrong half of the, the people. The uh, ski analogy that you're pulling up for me, one of my good buddies uh, had said years ago, check myself so I don't wreck myself. Um, you know, it's important to assess those risks before you s- send yourself off of some slope that's uh, destined to have qualities that you can't perceive before you head down it. But uh at the end of the day, I think you're right. You got to send it. I mean, if you've got it in you, if you've got the risk tolerance, uh, it's spot on. So Brian, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Um, your website for Mountain Pacific Opportunity Partners. Do you want to share that with uh, listeners? Uh, yes, it is uh, www. Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I think it's mtnpac.com. Is that right? Yeah, or, or maybe that it's sounds, MNT, sorry, right. mntpac.com yeah but i'm sure google you can find it mountain pacific opportunity yeah. partners and uh through the website i think folks could get a hold of you if they were so inclined correct brian thank you again i really appreciate the time and uh look forward to catching up great thank you very much kevin 